Hello, welcome to my podcast, Post-Imperial China. This is Episode 5, Nationalism. Last time, I talked about the May 4th, 1919 revolutions or demonstrations, whichever you want to call it. That was a watershed, iconic moment in Chinese history that opened a national public discourse of what China was, should be. It was also a self-criticism. We learned about the Washington Naval Conference that took place for four months between 1921 and 1922. From that conference came several agreements and understandings regarding the Far East, Pacific alignments, and geopolitical interests. China finally got back Shandong province, but the conference really yielded little else. Meanwhile, the Republican democracy experiment continued to falter and was going nowhere. In this episode, I want to spend some time, in fact, the vast majority of it, on the Nationalist Revolution and the military expeditions in the second half of the 1920s decade. By 1925, the Beiyang government in Peking was desperately looking at ways to save itself. It was well aware of the growing nationalist fervor and movement in China, particularly in southern China. The Beiyang government held a reconstruction conference in early 1925. It lasted about three months and discussed, and they passed dozens of resolutions covering the military, political reorganization, taxation, education, finance, opium suppression, and many other issues. They also discussed reconvening a constitutional drafting commission that would finally convene in August of 1925. By December, a draft of the new constitution was ready. It provided for an elected national assembly. But the election never happened. There was another coup in Peking in April of 1926 that put a different warlord in control of the national government. A real mess. Along this same timeline, time frame, brewing continually and slowly throughout the whole entire 1920 decade, the country began a campaign to unify. The warlord scheme for the last several, many years, was not working. Those that sought to unify China found their wishes addressed by one or another of the groups calling themselves nationalists. The two groups that sought unification were the Guomindang and the Communist. The backdrop 
that I have repeatedly alluded to had been the feckless national government in Peking. That and Western greed and imperialism laid bare by the Treaty of Versailles betrayal and the Bolshevik triumph over the Tsar in Russia left an indelible impression on China. So it was perfectly logical that a response to that would be nationalism. The Nationalist Revolution of the 1920s is another one of those landmark eras in China's modern history. Lasting roughly from 1923 to 1928, it would change China's political direction. Its primary goal was to unify China, overcome foreign interference, and reform society. From its inception, the revolution was aided and abetted by Russia. Russia provided experts, doctrine, know-how, military training, support, and weapons and money to the nationalists. How much is not clear, but undoubtedly it was large. The money came through the Communist International, or Comintern, which was set up by Lenin in 1919. Canton, or present-day Guangzhou, was the birth of the revolution. Canton was one of China's richest and largest cities where three important rivers merged. The movement's chief architect, at least in the planning phase, was Dr. Sun Yat-sen. He had devoted his entire adult life advocating constitutional republicanism. He had set up before two governments in Canton, one in 1917 opposing Duan Chiri and his Anfu clique, and then again in 1920 in opposition to the Peking-run Jili clique. Sun Yat-sen, however, never seemed to have the financial backing he wanted and needed to complete his objectives. Enter Russia. Russia had several motives for involving itself in China's nationalistic pursuits. Both nations shared a long, common border. Russia wanted to establish diplomatic relations with China. Russia also wanted to gain some control over the Chinese Eastern Railway in Manchuria that, you may remember, she once owned. She also rivaled with China over Outer Mongolia that the Chinese perceived was Chinese control despite a military presence by the Russians. Russia likewise believed China should be liberated from Western capitalist exploitation. The Russian strategy for China was simple. Drive a wedge between China and the capitalist. Through organizing the working class, it was believed that was the key to overthrowing the Chinese national government and replace it with a socialist state. I know I have spoke before about the Russian support and that they had provided help to the warlords and the existing national government in Peking and provided support to the CCP and the Kuomintang. It appears they were hedging their bets 
not sure which group to support. The Russians were at first unable to distinguish which group they wanted to support. But by 1923, the Comintern was giving money to Sun Yat-sen and his Kuomintang nationalists. With the assistance came directives from the Comintern, suggesting the Kuomintang throw support to a workers' movement in China. It is not clear, however, if Sun Yat-sen ever was a reliable devotee to the communist cause. But he, did, but he did need the money and their expertise and the other assistance that the Russians could provide. Another common turn mandate was that the Guomindang and the CCP joined forces. Within the Guomindang, however, there was resistance to the idea of joining with the communists as they feared this would lead to internecine struggles and revolts. Nevertheless, the two did join forces, forming the so-called First United Front to unify China and challenge Japan. That first unified front ran from roughly 1923 to 1927. When the Guomindang Congress convened in Canton in January 1924, some of its delegates were also members of the CCP, so the merger became a reality then. The Guomindang's military forces, led by Sun Yat-sen, were in dismal condition. That had, to, that had to change if the Guomindang nationalists had any hope to launch a campaign to unify China. Russia began sending money, training, and experienced military commanders to aid Sun Yat-sen. It was a massive effort to train and arm a modern army. However, Sun Yat-sen died March 12, 1925, and not necessarily because of his death, things were about to change. One rather immediate impact his death had was it caused splits and fissures in the Guomindang organization. Membership in the Guomindang and the CCP swelled following his death. Canton became the cradle of the nationalist movement. Citizens flocked to Canton. The groups began to encourage students at the universities to become involved with organized labor. The tone had turned anti-imperial. The CCP particularly became stronger. There was, however, brewing tensions between the conservative members of the Guomindang and the CCP. On May 15, 1925, Japanese guards fired upon a group of Chinese workers that had broke into an idle mill demanding work. One of the Chinese killed in the melee was a communist, and his death caused wide-scale protests against capitalists and imperialists. Shortly after that incident, on May 30th, four Chinese were killed by the police. The incident sparked a push for a national revolution. 28 Chinese cities saw demonstrations, all protesting foreign interference, stemming from these two recent events. 
Before I go further, I want to say a little more about a person emerging in China then that would have enormous impact for the next 20 years. Chiang Kai-shek. Born in Zhejiang province in the year 1887, he spent the earlier years of his adult life in military service for both China and Japan. He converted to republicanism by Sun Yat-sen and became his early protege. He helped Sun Yat-sen organize and build the Nationalist Party and military. Eventually, he would turn on the communist, as we shall soon learn. As a neat anecdotal story, his second wife, Song Meiling, was one of three sisters, all educated in the United States. All the sisters married pivotal figures at that time. Her oldest sister married a prominent, wealthy Chinese banker who helped raise money for the nationalist cause. Her other sister married Sun Yat-sen and eventually split with her family and became a supporter of the CCP. The three sisters, I think, are a perfect representation of the shifting and different loyalties of those times. Just a few months before Sun Yat-sen had died, the Nationalists had captured Canton. The entire operation had been in the planning stages for a while. Chiang Kai-shek was one of the operation's chief architects. By early 1926, he was the commander-in-chief of the Nationalist forces. Estimates vary, but it is believed he had eight army corps and probably about upwards of 200,000 troops. From Canton, in the summer of 1926, Chiang Kai-shek would begin the iconic Northern Expedition. With him were the contentious communist allies. Chiang Kai-shek announced in July 1926 a declaration that, quote, the purpose of the Revolutionary War is to build an independent free nation by overthrowing the warlords and imperialism, end of quote. By November 1926, the revolutionary forces had captured Wuhan. The Guomindang government in Canton quickly voted to move their capital there. In March 1927, the nationalist forces entered Shanghai. Two days later, Nanjing was taken. In April 1927, the nationalist government reorganized itself and established Nanjing as the new national government. Along the way, the nationalists went out of their way to attack England's concessions, seen as the chief imperialist power and primary foreign enemy. But at Shanghai, Chiang Kai-shek decided to permanently expel the communist members from the Nanjing government after the communists had helped him take Shanghai. Chiang Kai-shek also killed many members of the CCP in this purge. For a long time before the purge, there had been growing distrust and dislike of each other. The Nanjing campaign effectively ended the 12-year Beiyang government based in Beijing, 
However, there was much more work that needed to be done. In April of 1928, the National Revolution Army, led by Chiang Kai-shek, launched the second surge of the Northern Expedition. This time, the targets were the warlords that controlled the Shandong province and Beijing. By that summer in 1928, the Nationalists had captured Beijing and succeeded in unifying nearly all of China. The Nanjing government renamed Beijing to Beiping, meaning Northern Peace. By the end of 1928, the Northeast provinces, known as Manchuria, despite aggressive Japanese efforts to interfere, recognized the new nationalist government headquartered in Nanjing. The nationalist flag was finally hoisted on December 28, 1928, in Shenyang, China, in Manchuria. Oddly, after the first leg of the northern expedition, China had three capitals, Peking, Wuhan, and Nanjing. The nationalist push is notable for several things. First, it unified China. Second, it rid China of the fractious and destabilizing warlords. Third, it ended more or less the 12-year experiment of liberal constitutional representative government. Fourth, It galvanized the nation against foreign foreign interference and control. Japan, of course, and I did not talk much about her in this episode, tried to obstruct China's unification. Perhaps it had the most to lose. The English, too, had been targeted by the nationalist, it losing some of its concessions. Fifth, it created a riff that will play out for the next 20 years between the nationalists, led by Chiang Kai-shek, and the Communist Party that Chiang Kai-shek had purged from the Guomindang and the nationalists. Sixth, and finally, the nationalist push created the new nationalist, or some refer to it as the Second Republic of China government. In the next episode, I want to spend the entire episode on the circumstances and reality and challenges that the new nationalist government faced from the beginning. This will be an important backdrop of the events China would face for the next 20 years. Thank you. It has been my pleasure. <laughs>